Disputation Zusch, The Magicians of the Mountains. Is a podcast series about an annual conference scheme gathering scholars, writers, artists and scientists for a weekend of conversations and lectures in the Alpine Mountains. Inność środków każdego gatunku sztuki decyduje o jego istnieniu, ale i o jego jedności jako zjawiska niepowtarzalnego, nieprzetłumaczalnego. Differences of means of expression of every kind of art are a foundation of their existence, in fact. And at the same time, these differences determine the unique character of the untranslatable, one of the kind phenomenon. The painter's words are his or her paintings. So we use words to describe painter's works because words have become the most general instrument of communication among human beings, among people. But when we transform our thoughts into sentences, we see that new constructions are born. Painters don't have to use words as their means of expression. Yet when it comes to philosophers, the meeting that we have today, it means that they use dialogue, they use exchange of information, and we cannot leave words, we have to use them. That's the way I imagine our meeting today. If we go back 90 years now, we would be in a place very close to where we are now in Davos, where two philosophers, famous philosopher Kazirer and Heidegger, dialogued. And they were discussing various issues relating to humanity. And uh, I believe that today we're going to continue this kind of debate using lots of words through the filter or with the filter of the contemporary times. Episode 1 Big Bang An artist and a scientist are sitting on a train. There is no such thing as an objective reality, says the artist. Of course there is, replies the scientist. I have measured it. How can you be so sure that you measured it correctly, says the artist. Because I measured it several times and I got the same result. Anything that can be verified under different conditions is the very definition of truth. So for example, we can measure mass and velocity and prove to you that if a feather traveling at the speed of light would hit this structure in source, it would cause a ground explosion so big it would take out Liechtenstein as well. Oh, thank you. That's very useful to know. Uh, but your actual research now, searching for alien life, isn't that a bit fantastical? It used to be, but it's not a fantasy anymore. We have mapped and measured the universe enough to know certain facts about it. We know that there are certain basic conditions for life on other planets, and we know that these planets exist. So why don't they get in touch? Why do we always have to take the first step? I'm tired of always making the first move. 
Well, I think that in the space and time of the universe, the likelihood of us ever evolving concomitantly and managing to have the technology to contact each other, it's not going to happen. But isn't it arrogant to believe that we are the only creatures to evolve? I guess so. So what level of evolution are you looking at in those aliens? I'm looking at the molecular level. I'm searching for life that could be in the form of a gas. Gases are, in fact, the signs of life that are the easiest to detect. Oh, I guess that goes both ways. So somebody could be looking our way and detect our gases. Of course. We humans create messages through our gases every time a body decomposes or every time you fart. You're, in fact, communicating your existence to the universe. Okay, yeah, I, I know, I kind of know that from experience, but... Um, Look, the good news is, all of the known elements are listed on the periodic table, so we physicists can read the universe like an open book. The bad news, the size of the book, or rather the library of books, or rather the library of libraries, is enormous, so it really is a question of capacity. Yeah, I guess the search for life is as infinite as the possibilities are. I mean, your own lifetime is limited, so how much time do you need? How far are you looking? Say if our galaxy was a pizza. I look at about the pepperonis worth of its region. Because I'm looking at the tiny molecules on a tiny sliver of an atmosphere, on a tiny planet around an alien star. Our local neighborhood is as far as I can currently look without the sources of noise overwhelming the data. Pizza, I'm hungry. How, how big is that pizza? Can we share it? In our galaxy alone, there are 300 billion stars. We know that almost every star has at least one planet, but it could be closer to an average of 10. So that's 3,000 billion planets for us to study, and within them, trillions of possible species, releasing approximately 15,000 different molecules into their atmosphere. It took me four years to figure out how to detect a single one of those molecules, my PhD. So the rest of my career will be figuring out the other 14,999. You know, with enough people and with the IT developing the tools to detect any alien life in our local area, we may do it in our lifetime. What are your plans? Oh, well, um, I have a show uh, coming up, and um, I'm doing some writing and teaching, and uh, I'm taking part in this talk in this new art center in Switzerland. It was not a big deal, you know. No, no, tell me more, tell me more. Oh, it's, it's just this gathering. People get together for a couple of days to socialize and eat and drink and trash out some ideas and have a laugh, but, I mean, nothing compares, you know. I think it sounds nice. How do you justify an expense like that? Well, we have a patron, someone is willing to pay. How else would I be able to do it? Well, it sounds really nice, but you better dance for your dinner. Dance for my dinner. Or um, sing for your supper, whatever you Brits call it. I'm not British, and I don't dance or sing. But you've had free lunch. Well, I hope I will have a free lunch soon, I'm starving.
artists are the vehicle of civilization. The sheer fact that we exist is fundamentally justified. Everything else is a bonus. Bonus for whom? You or them? Look, I am not going to entertain this conversation any further. I know my worth, although nobody else around here seems to. I mean, can you explain, while in space exploration, that is supposed to be this great humanistic endeavor, there's room for military, technological, and scientific objectives, but the humanities barely exist. What form would you like for them to exist in? Well, take Mars. When are we going to Mars? And who's going to be on board? More technocrats? Oh, Mars. Mars is easy. It's just around the corner. Robotically, we've been going to Mars since the 60s. But sending humans is a little bit trickier. We are still learning from the astronauts on board the International Space Station how microgravity affects them, and it's not looking that great, to be honest. Long-term pressure to the brain and so on. We need to work on that. Yeah, please do. I have enough pressure to my brain. Another big issue is the psychological effect of such long-distance travel. The tensions that build up between people with high stakes can become severe and obstruct the mission. For that reason, there are serious discussions about sending a clown on the first manned mission to Mars. So, scientific objectives might just meet your target. Did you just call me a clown? <laughs> no, 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 not like that. I didn't mean a ha-ha clown, but someone whose purpose it is to diffuse the tension, make people relax, forget about the high stakes and the pragmatics for a moment, offer a different point of view, you know, that a point of view where the stakes are lower. Yeah, I get that. After all, what is the Mona Lisa to finding alien life on another planet? or finding a second habitable planet we can all move to and also destroy. You and I, we could not possibly compete. We are not even compatible. Of course we are compatible. We speak the same language. We both live in a human body. And with some extra effort, we could even create new life between us. <laughs> Hold on. Please stop. That is not appropriate to this conversation. But let's unite around the body. I agree, humans have human bodies, and some are fit enough for space travel. Not me in particular, I would probably throw up. But how many physically fit avant-garde dancers or choreographers have you seen on the International Space Station performing aesthetic experiments on their own bodies, exploring movement in microgravity next to whatever physiological experiments the astronauts are doing? What's the cost-effectiveness and the use value of an avant-garde dancer performing aesthetic experiments? What's the cost-effectiveness of yet another astronaut replacing some stuck-up screws on yet another spacewalk? Well, astronauts are imbued with heroic status. They were made to explore distant worlds. Unfortunately, things are a little bit slow right now. Look, even I know that today's astronauts do very little pioneering, but mainly perform maintenance functions or execute prepared science experiments on board the International Space Station, a tin can circling the Earth. The ISS is a science lab, where astronauts are basically glorified lab technicians. So let's not kid ourselves. 
There is no doubt that astronauts endure great pressure and take enormous risk, but their cultural status is so reduced that they now also need to perform ridiculous stunts, running marathons and covering pop songs to even hold the public's attention. Even I could do that. You just called yourself a clown. I have a question. When you went to art school, what did they actually teach you to do? What did they tell you that your purpose in society would be? You're right, not much. We were left to our own devices. Traditionally, artists are supposed to be concerned with aesthetics, but most student work is so conceptual and ugly that I don't know anymore. And anyway, if I said my purpose was to contribute beauty on a space mission, that would hardly cover my ticket to Mars, would it? Well, beauty can be highly functional. What do you mean? Well, take Sergei Korolev, for example, the designer of Sputnik, the first satellite launched in 1957. He wanted it to look beautiful. He knew it would be in pictures for all time, so insisted on it being polished and shiny. Since then, there has been little aesthetic consideration as satellite designers today are primarily concerned with weight reduction and cost effectiveness while in competition for contracts. It's not the Cold War anymore. Things were so romantic in the Cold War. Have you seen the movie? There are over 2,000 satellites in space today and 70 spacefaring nations worldwide that participate in space with vastly different resources and objectives. The space industry has developed rapidly and invisibly around us, and many actions of contemporary life, from bank transactions to telecommunications, are wired through it. The satellite design, which is leading the democratization in space, allowing not just two superpowers, but any university department to afford one, is the CubeSat. And as the name indicates, it's a dull-looking cube, hardly a jewel or a formal inspiration. So we could use artists for decoration. Would you like to paint a satellite? Thanks. I'm not a designer or a decorator. I can barely match my own outfit or make my own bed. Besides, we artists did cubes 100 years ago. It's not even a novelty for us. OK, but I think we can still find a use for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, as what? As a visionary. We could use your imagination, pure and simple. I'm a huge science fiction fan, and so many of the earliest fantasies have become reality. Think of Jules Verne. His imagination was wild, way ahead of its time. Well, that is the problem. I can't stand science fiction. People say, oh, you're an artist. Well, you can take us into the future just by imagining it. But that's completely missing the point of what I do, what my work is about. I can't just will things into existence. If I want to realize a big project, I have to raise the finances, clear every bureaucratic hurdle, recruit a crew, speak to the police, manage logistics, schedule and budgets, respect the law of physics, if only to build a metaphor around gravity, how it holds us back from doing anything. If I am to achieve anything in this world, I need to stay extremely grounded. Or who would ever respect me or help me out if I started talking about flying squid and technicolor? But you see things that other people can't see. I'm not interested in predicting the future like a magician. 
The future is simply inevitable as a consequence of the choices we make in the present. Why are you so upset? I'm just tired of having to defend what I do when I barely know the purpose myself. This is why I spend most of the time alone in the studio anyway, trying to make things from nothing, and where I first need to come up with a problem before having anything to solve, and when I solve it, it's not even satisfying, as it only leads to more questions, and the task of questioning is endless. And isn't that wonderful? Listen, smart ass, I have one question for you that might actually help. Tell me, what is the actual shape of the universe? I have been thinking of making a sculpture of the universe that could contain everything I'm thinking of, but I just can't picture the shape of it. It's kind of shaped like a donut. A donut you can be inside and outside of at the same time. God, I'm starving for sugar. Okay. A donut is a fairly manageable shape. But how do I treat the edge? I think you need to step away from a traditional notion of an edge. If the edge is expanding at the speed of light, and it started doing so before light could get to it, then light can never catch up with it. And if light never reaches it, then we cannot see it or perceive it. So how do you consider it at all? That's a philosophical question. If you can't perceive something, how do you know it exists? Of course. And that is beyond my area of expertise. But if you think of an edge, you are presuming something on the other side. But on the other side of the universe, there is no empty space. There's nothing. Yeah, I don't understand this absolute nothing concept. I can deal with negative space, but I mean, what is the universe in? In nothing. There's not even a vacuum. A vacuum is a space that has nothing in it. It is empty, but it exists. Beyond the edge of the universe, there isn't even anything to fill. It is the end of existence itself, like the Big Bang was the beginning. How do you know it was the beginning? Oh, we measured it, too. We went back and looked at the frequency of it and recorded the sound. Wow, really? What does the Big Bang sound like? It sounds a little bit like this. Uh, I thought it would sound more like... Bang. No. Did you record it from the very start? We have recorded it 0.04 seconds from the start. You missed the beginning! Come on, give us some credit. We are looking back 13.8 million billion of years, and we have a recording of it. And anyway, if the Big Bang was a song and you missed the first 0.04 seconds, would you even care? So you don't know what's on the other side of start. There is nothing on the other side. How can you be so sure? I don't have an answer for it, so I have to believe it. Oh, okay. So science, at the end of the day, is a belief system, just like art. I have to believe in the art I'm making. My peers and my industry have to endow it with a great status. I mean, how does something go from not existing to imagined, from being made, from imagined to being made, from being made 
in private, to exhibit it in public, from being revered to worth $28 million. Anything worth $28 million is obscene. That could fund my whole research program. It could fund a lot of art programs as well. But believing in something, having a set of values that drive our work, I think these are all things we share. Does that ultimately mean that you believe in God? God. That wasn't very helpful, was it? Now you've made all these people conjure up an image of an old man with a beard. God, as you imagine it, is of not much use for either one of us. But you do believe in a God. Yes, but my God is that which I don't know. God is the unanswered question. Thank you. Disputation Sush is hosted by Artstations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. It is chaired by Mareike Dittmer. Speakers at Disputation 2019 were Alexandra Mir, Timotheus Vermeulen, Tadeusz Slavek, Elisabeth Bronfen, Markus Steinweg, Jörg Heiser and Mark Sedler. Editing and Sound Design, Elena Caesar. The Magicians of the Mountains is produced by Museum Sush, Artstations Foundation CH. More information can be found online at museumsush.ch.